This podcast is brought to you thanks to the generous support of Whistler Blackcomb, leaders in delivering adventure. When we arrived on scene, there was no question that this person was never going to live through this. That's not how I saw it, however. And I was a complete train wreck. And now, you know, keep in mind, I've been, you know, training first aid and teaching some first aid and I've gone through the whole paramedic training training and everything. And I got to this event and I just completely lost control. Welcome to Delivering Adventure. This is the podcast that explores what it really takes to share adventure like a pro with your friends, your family, and as a profession. My name is Chris Capio, and I'm coming to you from Whistler, British Columbia. And I'm Jordy Shepard, recording from Canmore, Alberta. After a lifetime of working extensively in different parts of the adventure guiding industry, Chris and I have teamed up to launch this podcast. In each episode, you will hear top adventure guides, managers, marketers, and athletes share their best stories, advice, and trade secrets. The goal of this podcast is to share how you can take yourself and others farther from the mountains to the office and beyond. At the start of this season, we explored the challenge zone. This is usually the performance zone that we are operating in when we're experiencing adventure. In this episode, André Jean Mahot joins us to explore what happens to us in a crisis. When we end up in the zone above our challenge zone, which we refer to as our survival zone, if we are exposed to too much adversity such as danger, challenge, discomfort, or hardship, we can become overwhelmed. When this happens, we can find ourselves in the middle of a crisis. When it comes to adventure, a crisis can come in many forms, ranging from getting lost, getting injured, pushing well past our capabilities, and being faced with disaster. It's fair to say that being able to avoid a crisis and to be able to navigate through one if it happens are essential skills when it comes to delivering adventure. Understanding how we perform in a crisis is the first step in learning how we can perform better. This is what we will be discussing in this first episode with AJ. AJ Mao began his career in the outdoor industry over 30 years ago. After spending a decade instructing, guiding river trips in Quebec, and hikes from Alaska to the Andes, he shifted his focus to emergency response in remote settings. He worked as a paramedic on work sites on Baffin Island and began a 20-year career teaching wilderness first aid. He has taught emergency preparedness and first aid in multiple adventure travel guide programs in six different colleges and universities across the country. I can tell you firsthand that AJ is an excellent first aid instructor as I have taken a number of courses with him. Well, before we get to AJ, Chris, you must have a story about a situation that could have led to a crisis. I recall you telling me about getting into a tight chute while skiing that was a bit more adventure than you wanted. Well, Jordy, I have definitely had a few crises myself, and I have also had to manage plenty of situations where the people I was leading found themselves in crisis mode. When we're exposing people to challenging situations, there is no telling how people are going to respond. This is why being able to manage a crisis is so important, because it might not be you who is the person having the crisis. That said, I'll share a time when I found myself in a full-on crisis mode of my own making. 
Now, before I begin, let me lay out some groundwork. In any given moment, we are operating in one of three performance zones. If you stack them on top of each other, they are comfort at the bottom, challenge in the middle, and survival at the top. At the bottom of our comfort zone, we generally feel boredom. At the top of our survival zone, we can feel incapacitation. Adventure generally happens between these two points in the challenge zone. For the sake of this episode, we are talking about the survival zone, as you touched on, Jordy. 20 years ago or so, I was following a ski instructor named Rick Brown. Unbeknownst to me at the time was the fact that Rick is an incredibly talented skier who likes to ski very, very fast. In contrast, I'm a fairly cautious skier compared to many of my peers. Speed has never really been my thing. So I was following Rick into a run called the Cirque on Whistler Mountain. The Cirque is a double black slope which starts with a narrow entrance sandwiched between a rock wall with a huge overhanging cornice on one side and a cliff that eventually turns into another rock wall on the other. Once you get past this part of the run, which is really a narrow chute, the run opens up and while it's still steep, it's nothing like the chute. For the first part of the run, Rick and I carefully side-slipped along the cliff top and then entered the part of the run that is walled in. The weather was overcast and the light was fairly flat. At this point, Rick decided to straight line the rest of the way down the chute into the top of the main part of the run, which is open. At this point, Rick decided to straight line the rest of the way down the chute into the top of the main part of the run, which is open. At that time, I think I had only been there once, so I didn't really know the terrain very well. I decided that since Rick decided to straight line the run, I was probably good to go too. This is when I made a nearly catastrophic mistake and learned a very valuable lesson. Just because someone else does something doesn't mean you can do it too. Within seconds, I was going way faster than my wrist tolerance allows. With no escape route or way to slow down, because I was boxed in by the terrain, the only thing I could do was to focus on going straight and hope that I could make it to where the run opened up. In that moment, I basically became incapacitated. My muscles became super tight as I hit all of these bumps I couldn't see due to the flat light. Adrenaline flooded through my body and I became almost frozen with fear. Luckily, I was able to keep my instincts from taking over because they were telling me to throw myself to the ground in an effort to try to stop. Of course, that would have been completely irrational, but that is what can happen to us in a crisis. In the end, I was able to stop. Unfortunately, I was so tense that I strained my knee and I had to ski the rest of the run on one leg. The lesson for me here is that I can better relate to people who end up in that crisis mode. I also have a better sense of what you need to do to be able to push through it. This story is one of the reasons why I wanted to bring AJ on to explore this topic. So, with this in mind, let's bring in AJ. Hi AJ, welcome to the show. Where are you right now? I am in Squamish, uh, my house. British Columbia. British Columbia, yes. 
So can you tell us about your path into the adventure industry? Um, oh my gosh, it started uh, just over 30 years, almost 35 years ago. I guess my first job in the outdoor industry was as a canoe instructor for a summer camp as a, as a teenager. And, and I've never really left the outdoor industry since then. Uh, so I worked as a river guide is where I sort of cut my teeth as, as a guide initially, then moved on to trekking. Um, and then also part of that, <clears throat> I became more and more involved in uh, sort of the first aid and emergency management aspect of it. And this eventually led me uh, into um, the avalanche world. And for the past 20 years, that's been a big part of uh, what I'm doing, working as an avalanche forecaster and a ski patroller, uh, and also being involved in, the, in two search and rescue teams. So today we're talking about managing in a crisis as a skill in delivering adventure. How would you define a crisis, AJ? Uh, you know, I've been thinking about uh, this a lot uh, since uh, since your invitation to talk here, um, and and before I give like a, a clear definition of what I think, maybe a, a disclaimer that I'm I um, the definition that I propose here is not what a crisis is, but it's it's a maybe a, a baseline for us to understand what we're talking about and. Um, and carry on a conversation. Uh, so before we talk about crisis, I, I just want to introduce the idea of uh, an element at risk, right? So that's a, a basic risk management concept. So the element at risk could be your, your physical well-being or your life, but it could be much broader than that. It could be, uh, you know, your reputation, your money, your couple, your, you know, uh, it's very broad. Um, and the second thing I'd want to introduce is um, there's there's a crisis, but there's also a period that I will call like a critical period. And a critical period would be a, a period of time where your element at risk is potentially threatened, but you're still holding it together. And you know, for that matter, there's a lot of outdoor pursuits that fit that category. We're we're looking to put ourselves into that critical period where as long as we're in control, it's good, but we cannot afford to lose control. Um, and so that leads me to what a crisis is. And in my opinion, a crisis is when you lose control. It does involve this aspect of you were managing things just right. And because of that, nothing was happening. And for some reason, you lost control, and now your element at risk has been compromised. Um, let's say this is your physical integrity, and, and you got hurt, for example. Um, now, with the crisis, uh, there needs to be, uh, I mean, to be a crisis, I think there needs to be the potential for things to get worse. Uh, you know, if it's a fatality, then can't really make that a whole lot worse. Uh, so is that considered a crisis? Well, maybe, maybe not. And we can elaborate on that. But to me, a crisis is when, okay, something happened, you lost control, your element at risk was compromised, and what you do next will determine whether or not your element at risk is going to stay the same or is actually going to get further damaged. Um, so, but there is that element of loss of control. 
So before the crisis in that critical phase, you were in a proactive phase, right? You were deliberate in your action and then something happened and now you, you switch to a reactive way of dealing with it. Um, so that to me is a crisis. And another thing that I'd say also is, is I see um, an element of ownership in a crisis. Um, so the person whose element at risk is safety, well-being, whatnot, is compromised is the person owning the crisis. And as you know, if if you're looking at the first aid or first responders, you know one of their little mantra is remember it's not your emergency. Uh, and that's precisely so that you realize that you don't own that crisis. You're only there to help out. Um, so there's, that's what I'm proposing anyways, as, as a definition or a basis for our conversation. Right. Where the perspective might be a little different if it's part, if it's someone on your guiding team, that's something has come up and, and you're in a crisis now, and now you do feel like you have more ownership of it and you're not just responding to help out, but you're actually, you know, part of, part of the basis of the, the yeah. issue where you're involved with it. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, you could, two people can be in the same event and they're both in a crisis for completely different reasons, right? So if you have a guiding scenario where one of the guests gets hurt, um, you know, the guest is in a crisis because he, you know, something happened. His physical well-being has been compromised. He needs help. He can't really manage this on his own. The guide, on the other hand, you know, is his physical well-being is probably not at risk, but that's not to say that he has nothing at risk, right? His reputation as a guide, as a company, and his job maybe. Uh, so the element at risk is going to be completely different. Doesn't necessarily mean that. Uh, they're both in a crisis for different reasons. And so what do you have for us as an example of a time when you were exposed to a crisis that you struggled to manage? Um, I have, I have a few, and I was trying to figure, um, figure out some that illustrate what we were just talking about, like the ownership of, of the crisis. Um, and one of the first one that came to mind is when I, um, when I did my paramedic training, uh, which is quite quite some time ago now, um, at the end of the training, you have your precepting period where you're on the ambulance and real ambulance responding to real calls with experienced paramedics who are your preceptors. And it was towards the end of that period. And then my preceptor said, okay, AJ, next call is yours. Doesn't matter what it is, you're in charge. And I remember it very clearly. Uh, it was in the middle of the night, it was pitch black, raining really hard. And it was a pedestrian that was struck by a vehicle at high speed. So technically, according to the, the definitions that we have given, um, this is not really a crisis. When we arrived on scene, there was no question that this person was never going to live through this. Um, that's not how I saw it, however. And I was a complete train wreck. And now, you know, keep in mind, I had been, you know, training first aid and teaching some first aid and I've gone through the whole paramedic training, training and everything. And I got to this event and I just completely lost control. 
Um, fortunately, my preceptor was very experienced and very skilled. And I think the most significant thing he did was to just let me run with it and crash and burn because he saw that I couldn't really make things worse. This was not a real crisis, but there was a lot of very important things that I did not think about whatsoever that he was doing in the background while I was doing whatever I was doing, just, just freaking out. Um, and so after the event, we, you know, we transferred the, the patient and the deceased at this point. Um, he sat down and he said, first, are you okay? I, said, I, I was shaken, but, um, you know, I, I felt reasonably well. And then his second question was, was the driver okay? And I was like, what do you mean? I said, well, if somebody was hit by a car, someone had to be driving that car. Did you talk to the driver? Was the driver okay? And it hit me like a brick wall going, oh my God. And then he started to ask me all of these questions of all the important things that I should have looked for and just didn't. And he did it all in the background. Uh, he could have pushed me out of the way and and do everything, but he didn't do that. And that was, for me, a very, very important learning experience going despite all of this training and all of the all of the knowledge that i had i realized that i had a lot of experience like i knew how to do all of these things but the reality is confronted to a, a large amount of stress i just completely lost everything so that was the my first example the second i'd say uh was a climbing accident that that involved me um, so we were backing out from an aid climb. Um, this was again, uh, quite some time ago. And it was the end of the day, a beautiful day. We're thinking about beers for the most part and weren't as attentive as we should have been. Uh, and my partner was lowering me down to the ground, um, on a rope that just wasn't long enough. And for years, I was very embarrassed to tell that story because who repels off the end of a rope? Uh, and then you hear of all these, <laughs> these very skilled and, and experienced climber who, you know, have that kind of experience. Uh, and so the end result is I fell 10 meters onto the ground, broke my back, both my legs and, and got a pretty serious concussion out of it. And at that moment, the, my, my partner, my climbing partner got into the same sort of state of mind as I was in during that um, previous example. And I remember being lying down in, in tremendous amounts of pain and, and confusion and seeing him not being very useful and talking him through it. Uh, and at that point, um, it was completely different because I owned that crisis and I thought okay well I gotta get out of here uh, and I became very task oriented and for some reason uh, I was able to see a little bit more clearly and make a plan and say okay well you're going to have to leave me but I'm not sure that I'm going to remain conscious so we have to do something about my airway and so he rolled me over onto my side and so uh, at that moment, I was actually quite focused and able to take ownership of that crisis and make a plan to get out of it. 
Uh, and then the third example, if I may, was um, more recent when there was a, a, an avalanche accident that involved five people um, in, uh, here on the North Shore on Mount Harvey. Uh, and I was in the first group that responded to the scene. And I had not, never done anything like that. This was not like the paramedic thing. This was very, this was my world. This was people in the mountain and sitting in the helicopter. I remember thinking clearly, this may very well be the end of my avalanche career. I do not know how I'm going to react to this. Uh, so this could very well have like at that point, sitting in that helicopter, my element at risk was my mental health, uh, my career, my, like, I, I don't know how I'm going to react to this, but I have to go. Um, and then, it, you know, again, situation where it's hard to make things a whole lot worse. We knew these people had been buried in the avalanche for, for multiple hours. We had no illusion that we we're going to find any survivors. Um, and I think that what protected me <clears throat> was the group of people that I was with. Very professional, very skilled we moved in and then I came out of this not having the feeling that I went through a crisis, but rather that we did a really good job. Um, and I, I didn't really have that, that sensation of loss of control at any point. Yeah. So a few incidents there and uh, I see some commonality there is you didn't talk about you know, kind of uh, freaking out or or not freaking out, um, you know, in, in the various circumstances, right. You know, and from different perspectives, right. You being the, the patient, uh, you're, you're the rescuer and responder in a couple of those incidents. And then one, you were the one who was actually injured, right. And, mm -hmm. and trying to keep a cool head and, and keep the process flowing so you can get to higher care, uh, and helping your climbing partner in that case. So what happens to us from a psychological perspective when we're, or sorry, what happens to us from a physiological perspective when we're faced with a crisis? So, and this, this goes back to my, my first aid teaching years. So the, our nervous system has a whole side that is autonomic. Essentially, we have no control over it, but it regulates how our body <clears throat> works. Excuse me. Um, and part of that um, autonomic nervous system is the sympathetic nervous system. And that's the one who's responsible to prepare your body for action. The, the, the hormone associated with that system is adrenaline, which is, which is fairly well known. Um, so if we're presenting, presented with um, a stressful environment or situation, this will tend to elevate our production of adrenaline. Now, adrenaline in small doses is actually quite beneficial right? It's, it prepares our body for action. Uh, but it's very easy to get to a tipping point where adrenaline is not beneficial anymore. And it becomes, it impairs you. Um, so a small amount of adrenaline is actually going to typically increase your skills. You know, if you're mountain biking down a steep trail and you feel like you're in control, you have a fair bit of adrenaline going, but you're not at that point that tipping point where it becomes too much. Now, as you lose control or suddenly you realize I have way too much speed here, now you're going to have this burst of adrenaline and it's going to have very unfortunate consequences. One of the things that it will do is that it will make you uh, 
grip like it will tighten your muscle that's when people you know grab a handful of brakes and then go over the handlebar um, that's when climbers start to like really clutch and they over grip all the holds and all of that it makes you tunnel vision it also enable um, inhibits your ability to to comprehend you're certainly not able to comprehend anything that is complex you cannot make connections you cannot analyze when you're in that state you're essentially in what the books call the fight or flight reaction or or some books now call it the fight flight or freeze reaction because there's a, a lot of people who will just simply freeze when you get there uh, and then in in the most extreme cases you can get into like panic anxiety where the person becomes physically incapacitated by uh, by the amount of adrenaline rushing through their system uh, and at, th at this point they become completely helpless and it's I, I should add also that it's very very difficult to get out of that so as we're discussing a little bit further on how to manage crisis uh, if you unfortunately I don't want to say allow but in, in a sense if you allow your body to get there past that tipping point it's almost impossible to recover from that uh, in the short term and bring things back together. So AJ, do you have an example from your career of either yourself or someone you have seen who has become physically incapacitated by a crisis? Um, yes, I have a few. One that comes to mind um, also brings the, um, the concept of perceived risk especially for guides this is a very important uh concept because as guides we tend to uh be comfortable in the environment we're in uh whether we should or not you know in your previous episode with uh, barry blanchard he he actually touches on that like like just tolerating this incredible amount of exposure to serious hazard uh, that's not what we're typically doing when you're when we're guiding we're in an environment that is you know reasonable uh, but our clients may not perceive it that way so sometimes the perception of level of risk is completely skewed compared to what the actual risk is now in in this example what happened is um the, my guest flipped the canoe in in what i would consider to be very, very gentle white water it was a small class one not a whole lot of water uh, you know, what I was saying to my guests is if you think you're going to drown, just stand up and then you'll realize that you have water to your knees and you'll be just fine. Um, nevertheless, she flipped the canoe and then she got bumped on uh, some rocks. Um, and her perception is that she came very, very close to dying. Um, and when we finally pulled her out, she couldn't do anything. She could just sit and stare and she was incapable of following even the simplest commands. Uh, and that lasted a while. And I was, and then, and then I made a mistake because when people are in that state, they're beyond reasoning. You cannot reason with somebody who's in that state. And I, that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to explain to her, like, look, I realize this may have been scary, but it's really not like, you know, you didn't go through a harrowing experience. It felt that way, but you did not 
actually risk dying here. Um, and then that backfired on me pretty seriously, and I didn't expect that. Uh, so what happened is all my efforts to try to reassure her were interpreted by her as I almost died and this guy doesn't realize it. And he's the one responsible for my safety for the rest of the trip. I'm in big trouble. Um, so it, it was a big eye opener for me that when you're dealing with people who become so heavily um, influenced by their experience, you cannot expect to reason with them, at least not during the acute phase. So if you went back in time, what would you have done or what do you think you could have done or could you have done anything differently to to get a better result there? You know, I'm certainly not an expert in, in the psychology of trauma or, but I think that I would have let her maybe come to her own conclusion instead of trying really hard to reassure her. And, and to be fair, what I was also trying to do in this is, is promote myself as a risk manager going like, I did not put you in a situation that was very dangerous. You know, that was sort of my element at risk was my reputation. Um, so, you know, I had an agenda there. Uh, so I was trying really hard for her to understand and acknowledge that this was not a very risky event and that was the wrong approach so i think that i should have let her process this uh not worry too much about my reputation let her process it and then have a discussion a little bit later um in, in which she would have you know at the same it's a fine line because you don't want to acknowledge irrational fear and, and say, yeah, no, you should definitely feel like you almost died because uh, it's just not accurate. Uh, but in trying to downplay it is, is a very delicate thing to do. Yeah, you're you're 100% right. People, especially in stressful situations, are going to, they're not going to behave in ways that, that can be easy for us to anticipate or to manage for sure. So looking at this situation, do you think there was anything that that person could have done to cope better with the situation? Or do you just think that the, the way their, their makeup was, they were just going to become physiologically and psychologically overwhelmed? Yeah, I think this is a very interesting question. I think that when you're going into a situation, you, you come in with a lifetime of experiences, good and bad, right? So... They say, you know, so some research have, have um, suggested that only about 10 to maybe 20% of people are predisposed to react appropriately in an emergency. It's not to say that only 10% of people will ever because it can be trained, right? But people who, for whom this comes naturally, there's, there's actually a pretty small percentage now, when you're faced with a crisis, you come in with all of your baggage, all your life experiences that will sort of either allow you to have confidence in your ability to pull through uh, or to seriously undermine 
that ability. Um, and to be fair, you know, this, this um, client of mine, this was a long time ago, and I, I don't really know. I was still pretty young, and in in that period, I didn't necessarily spend a whole lot of time getting to know my clients a little bit deeper. Um, so, yeah, could could she have done something differently? I personally, I doubt it. I think that whether or not there was some underlying issue, like a fear of water that I wasn't aware of, or uh, the, the bottom line is she passed that tipping point where adrenaline was rushing through her blood in just incredible amounts. And at that point, she's in a crisis that she cannot get out of herself. Um, so yeah, I- interesting question. I'm not sure that, well, I'm convinced that if you let yourself go this far into panic, that you essentially at that point have to rely on on others to help you out. It, it I know it. it's hard for people that are coaching people through these situations where really putting them on the edge of, of where they could go into a crisis to be able to anticipate how someone is going to react. I had this guy... He wanted to learn uh, how to ski steep terrain, and his goal was to be able to ski Spanky's Ladder on Blackcomb, which is a, an area of double black expert terrain, and so that was kind of our goal. And so I took him down this steeper section of uh, of a run, and uh, and he didn't do, didn't do very well. And we were a bit limited by terrain. It was early in the season, so there wasn't much snow, and so actually wasn't that much steep terrain available. So went and worked on his skiing, we came back, and he did actually worse the second time down the steep slope than he did the first time. So I was like, okay, well, I don't want to do that anymore. So we go and work on his skiing some more. And then it's two o'clock in the afternoon. And I asked him, okay, so we've got an hour left. You know, this is kind of probably our last run or thereabouts. What, like, what do you want to do? How do you want to play this out? And he says, well, I want to go back to that steep slope that I didn't do very well on the first two times. And I'm thinking, that's a terrible idea. Like, it's 2 o'clock. You did poorly twice. You're probably going to start getting tired. Like, this is really not a great thing to do. And then I said to him, but I, but instead of just saying, no, we're not going to do it, I said, okay, listen, let me ask you something. How would you feel if this doesn't go well? How are you going to feel about that? And he says, I don't care. I just want to go back and show that mountain who the boss is. And then in that moment, it's like, okay, fine. All right, well then if you have that level of resiliency, then there you go. And then you flip it around to the story that you just shared going in to there. I, I had a similar situation where I was coaching uh, some, some guides. We were doing some guide training. And essentially, I took the group, turned most of them into, into pretend clients. And I had two people who were designated leaders. Uh, and then one of the people in... The, the pretend client was in, in a leader boat and that leader did not know that the pretend client had been told to flip the canoe. And so when the canoe flipped, she didn't expect it to happen. So the leader didn't see it coming. And of course, that's what often happens, right? You don't know things are going to happen, especially in a boat. It can roll pretty quickly. And she completely became incapacitated. And uh, I had to intervene and stop and do the rescue and get everybody out. And, and I did not see that coming uh, at all. I was totally shocked. 
I had a similar experience on a guide training where we had uh, we had staged um, a first aid scenario that was related to a bear attack, and it was a fairly large group. Um, and so none of the candidates knew about it. And then when when it got on scene, um, you know, the, the candidates who could actually see the patient realize, oh, okay, it's makeup. I see what's going on. It's part of the part of the exercise. But there was one of the candidates who were who was a little bit um, farther back and couldn't actually see that it was makeup and it was not a real event. So we were a solid 10 minutes into that event and she still had no idea. Um, and at one point she just started screaming at me because I was, you know, arguably maybe the most experienced person there and I was doing nothing. <laughs> I was just, I had a, a notepad and I was taking notes and she started screaming at me and I, I said, well, you, you do realize this is just an exercise, right? Where there's nobody's actually hurt. Um, and she was furious. Um, and she actually left and she quit the company on the spot. Um, she was, she was quite distressed actually. And, you know, part of it was probably my fault there. Okay, we're going to finish up this episode here, AJ. Thanks so much for doing this. This has been awesome. If you want to see more of AJ, we encourage you to check out his YouTube channel, North Shore Snowpack. We've posted a link in the show notes. Now let's see if we can unpack some of the great insights that AJ has shared so far. Well, Jordy, what stood out to you? Well, Chris, let's start with talking about defining what a crisis actually is. According to AJ, a crisis is when we lose control. We may have had a critical period before we lost control where we were holding things together. During this critical period, there is usually an element at risk like our physical well-being or the safety of others. However, if that situation deteriorates, that element at risk is compromised and we can no longer keep things together and we can end up in a crisis. During a crisis, we end up going from a proactive state to a reactive state. There is also usually an element of ownership where the person at the center of the crisis feels a level of responsibility for what is going on. Secondly, let's talk about how a crisis is a very subjective event. Two people can be in the same event and have a crisis for different reasons. Of course, two people can also be in the same incident and maybe only one of them has a crisis. And third, physiologically, we get a surge of adrenaline, which prepares us for action. This puts us in a state of fight or flight. This causes our muscles to tense up and leads to tunnel vision. It's happened to all of us at one time or another. It becomes hard to analyze mentally, as our capacity to process everything that is going on is reduced. Eventually, we can become physically incapacitated. I've seen it happen a number of times. Once this happens, it can be very difficult to get out of this state. If you do get to this point, it can be almost impossible to get out of it in the short term. All great points, Jordy. I think um, for me, a couple of the things that I took away is managing other people. It can be very difficult to manage people when they're experiencing a crisis. Uh, you and I have both been in this situation. 10 to 20% of people are predisposed to act appropriately in a crisis. That means that when people are faced with a crisis, 80 to 90% of people will experience some level of paralysis or loss of performance. Adding to the difficulty of managing people is how unreasonable they can become. When people have adrenaline flowing through their bodies and they are gripped with panic, 
it is impossible to reason with them. This means that people may need time to process things before debriefing them. Also, trying to downplay their feelings can backfire on you, as AJ shared with us. In our next episode, AJ is going to walk us through some of the things that we can do to help us perform better when we find ourselves in a crisis. Before we share one last funny story with AJ, just a quick reminder that if you haven't already done so, please take a moment to click the follow button in your podcast player so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Your time is important, and we thank you very much for listening. Now, one last story from AJ. Uh, I was with a friend, and we were coming out of the, the Spearhead Range, um, and it was the first big hot day of the season, uh, which from an avalanche perspective is, is always a scary time. And so we had decided, okay, so let's see. We didn't have very far to go, but uh, the first the first slope that we had to uh, cross was sort of um, oriented a little bit sort of uh, southeast. And uh, we knew it was actually going to get the sun pretty early on. So we wanted to leave early. Um, we didn't actually, <laughs> you know, it wasn't terribly late, but we left a little bit later than we'd expected and starting, oh, well, okay, this is not great. It's not ideal, but you know, we'll, we'll just get across pretty quick and we could pick a line where we're mostly going down and, um, <clears throat> so we start our traverse below this big face that is not baking in the sun. It has a cornice on top and, uh, we come to a stop on a little bench and my friend didn't clip his ski well, apparently. So as he came to a stop, his ski continued and went all the way down the glacier <laughs> and we could initially, we thought, okay, well, that's a problem. Uh, but then we could see it down there when it was really far, um, so with all of our knowledge about risk management and all of that, we managed to leave too late, not click our skis properly, and then lose the ski all the way down the, the glacier. And then, you know, it was still close enough that you say, well, we can't just leave it there. We, you know, the, op the other option was to ski out on just one ski, and that was going to be much more time consuming. Uh, so then here we are sitting on this face, baking in the sun, and it's now, you know, probably 10 in the morning and 25 degrees, and we're pretty scared at that point as my friend takes one of my skis to go get his ski down and, and come back up. So, you know, it, it was pretty humorous at the time. We didn't find it very funny, especially him who had to go all the way down and skin back up. Uh, but it, it, you know, goes to show that things like that happen. Like, and that's part of the foreseeable part and always give yourself a margin of safety. Had we left much earlier, that morning, like like we had planned and not being lazy, uh, it would have been probably lo a lot less um, scary just to lose a ski and it would have been just funny. But now we ended up being exposed a lot more than we really cared for.